Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that, I'm not ashamed to admit this, still gets a little frazzled, a little sweaty palms just from threading my sewing machine. Someday, I'm sure it'll be less stressful, but uh, yeah, the sweaty palms don't make it easier, do they? <laughs> anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 173. Today's special guest is Zoe Edwards, the host of Check Your Thread, which is a podcast that looks at how to sew more sustainably. I I'm so excited to talk to Zoe about all things sewing. I have been looking for so long for just the right guest, someone who was super knowledgeable, but would also want to talk about the privilege attached to being able to sew all of your stuff and how sewing your clothes isn't automatically the most sustainable option, but it can be. Yeah, everything is complicated, right? Well, Zoe was definitely the right person for the job because we talked for so long that this episode is actually part one of two. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about how and why Zoe started a podcast about sewing, her relationship with sewing, and we'll unpack the privileges that make sewing more challenging or less accessible for many people and talk about how that can be better. But before we jump into all of that, last week I promised you that I would explain, introduce, unpack another big player in this new era, this new scary era of ultra fast fashion. So let's get right into that. It was 1.30 a.m. in the last days of 2020. And put a pin in that time because it matters. It matters a lot. 1.30 a.m. It was December 29th at 1.30 a.m. A 22-year-old employee of Chinese e-commerce giant Pinduoduo was leaving work. It was 1.30 a.m. when she was leaving work. She clutched her stomach and collapsed. Her coworkers, also still at the office at 1.30 a.m., rushed her to the hospital immediately, but she died six hours later. She was 22 years old. Her name was Faye. There's no official explanation for what happened, but word spread fast across social media that she had died of exhaustion, just simply from overworking. A spokesperson for Pindoduo explained that in the far west of China, where this happened, it is normal to work very late, past midnight, due to China's single time zone. This time zone spans 2,000 miles. For context, the U.S. is about 2,800 miles in width and has multiple time zones. Spreading one time zone out across 2,000 miles means that in the east, in Beijing, the sun might rise at 6 or 7 a.m., but in the far west, that won't happen until like 10 a.m. So it has a strange impact on day-to-day -day life in the far west of China, with exams happening late at night, dinners at midnight, etc. But even still, even if the sun rises at 10 a.m., leaving work just eight and a half hours before that 
It's still a very long day. It's the equivalent of staying at the office until 10 or 11 p.m. here in the United States. Faye had been working at Pinduoduo since 2019, and in October of 2020, just a few months before her death, she had written about the working conditions of her employer on WeChat, saying, quote, we employees are at the mercy of capitalism. A few weeks after Faye's death, another employee of Pinduoduo, his last name is Wang, posted a video about the abysmal working conditions of the company, saying that the company required that all employees work at least 300 hours per month. Faye worked in the grocery department, which required employees to work 380 hours per month. So listen, we're going to do the math there. You know I've got the calculator. It's right here in my hand. 380 hours per month divided by four weeks in a month is 95 hours per week. Divide that by seven days and you get 13 and a half, let's just say 14 hours each day. And that is how you end up leaving work at 1.30 in the morning. In his video, Wang said, quote, maybe I'm still student-like and I haven't learned to be a professional who hides my thoughts and protects myself, but I think the world should not be like this. He was fired by Pinduoduo for posting the video, along with posting a photo of the ambulance that was taking Faye away. Around the same time, and I'm talking within the same two-week period following Faye's death, Another young Pinduoduo employee with the last name Tan requested some time off from work. He then traveled home and jumped to his death from the roof of a building in his hometown. Many in China called for a boycott of Pinduoduo and other tech companies that rely on slash enforce what is called the 996 rule. Employees must work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. 72 hours a week. Practically a vacation compared to the 95 hours each week demanded by the grocery department at Pinduoduo. In fact, workers in China have been saying that more companies ascribe to a 715 culture, which is 15 hours a day, seven days a week. That is not unlike what Faye was expected to work in the grocery department at Pinduoduo. One commenter on a discussion of the deaths and Pinduoduo's part in it said, quote, what is sadder than a society in which your work unit squeezes you for your value and then brainwashes you saying, if you don't work overtime, you won't be motivated. I want to make very clear to you that odds are very, very high that if you are buying something from Shein, AliExpress, Taobao, Timu, you are supporting companies that are overworking employees on all levels, from the factories to the offices. And I would also add, that's also happening when you buy something from just about any fast fashion retailer or brand. This is not isolated to China, and it's not isolated to just a few companies. And I have worked so many days from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m., or from 5 a.m. to 6 p.m., or later and later. At my last job, 
I usually didn't stop working until at least 8 p.m. every day, and I often worked on the weekends as well. I never took lunch breaks. This is how retail operates and is so profitable in this era when people want things for the lowest prices possible. They make up the loss of revenue from offering low prices by hiring less people, paying them less to do more work. Sure, Pindoduo's grocery department is out of control by expecting 380 hours per month, but plenty of retailers based here in the United States are doing the same thing. So what is Pindoduo? It's an online platform selling just about anything from clothes to toys to groceries, all at bargain basement prices, always offering free and fast shipping. And if this reminds you of another big company, Amazon, well, you're right. And that's not the first time we're going to see that parallel as I explain all of this. I like this description of the company from the Washington Post, quote, an online deals platform responsible for minting the country's second richest man. Yes, the second wealthiest man in China is named Colin Huang, and he founded Pinduoduo in 2015, just not that long ago. And it is a massive platform now. It happened really fast. I mean, you got to remember, Amazon has been around for well more than 20 years at this point. Pinduoduo, eight. Big Western brands have been seeing strong and growing sales in China for years. Apple, Nike, Gucci, H&M, you name it. But there is another part of the population in China, primarily rural and low-income shoppers who are more interested in bargains. A 40-cent pair of earrings, 50 rolls of toilet paper for $4.75, a pair of Playboy, in quotes, because they're not real Playboy, a pair of Playboy brand pants for $3, 10 mangoes for $1.50. That's the space that Pinduoduo occupies, selling via its app to about 350 million customers per year. That was as of 2018. Not a lot of people have written about this company since then, but I have no doubt that it's even more at this point. I'm going to share a New York Times article by Raymond Zong from 2018 in the show notes that really goes into Pinduoduo and its customer base and their behavior. But I'm going to share some of the customer quotes because it's fascinating and it's not dissimilar to some consumer behaviors that we see happening around us like every day. First up is Mr. Lee. He is 45 and he and his wife operate a food truck outside a factory from the article. Over the past two years, Mr. Lee has bought nearly $1,000 worth of merchandise on Pinduoduo the equivalent of about two months of income for him. Among his purchases, an inflatable paddle boat, a fishing bag, and a cherry red motorized car for his young daughter to drive around. Mr. Lee knows he's a little addicted and regretted purchases, he has a few. Some were made out of curiosity. In other cases, the items were of such lousy quality that he threw them out after they arrived. The toys he has bought for his daughter, including dolls, a violin, and a keyboard, have been particularly bad, he said. 
It's also inexpensive, though, that he said he didn't mind the occasional misfire. It's nothing, really, he said of his spending on the app. Hmm. Does this sound familiar to you? Maybe a little bit like buying random stuff from Amazon or Shein? And it being so low quality and disappointing that you're kind of like, whatever, it was so cheap, and you just toss it or donate it? Hmm. There's another customer, Ms. Kang, a 52-year-old retiree in the southwest city of Chengdu. She's used Pinduoduo to buy shoes, clothes, gadgets, according to her, quite a lot, although the quality isn't always great. This spring, she got stung by two bad purchases. First, there was a $5 wardrobe with colorful fabric panels and a so-called real wood frame. One touch was all she needed to realize that the thing was no good. Then she bought a chiffon skirt with a floral pattern, less than $6, including a yellow t-shirt to wear with it, that arrived with a jagged tear down the side. Ms. Kang said she is now less likely to buy things on Pinduoduo solely because they are cheap, but she still looks at the app every day. In fact, many customers look at the app every day because Pinduoduo has sort of gamified the shopping experience with incentives for inviting friends to join the platform, like free products, spinning wheels that offer offer surprise discounts, pop-up windows that tell you what other people you know are buying at that moment, um, an endless array of coupons, free shipping, and just New stuff arriving on the site constantly. This dizzying experience is intentional. The company has called its app a combination of Costco and Disneyland. Pinduoduo doesn't actually make any of the stuff it sells. Instead, it is a platform for merchants to list and sell their product. Pinduoduo collects a fee for each sale and charges these merchants to promote their products on the app. As a result of this type of platform, we see a lot of the same stuff that happens on, say, you know, eBay or Etsy. There are a lot of knockoffs. There are a lot of disappointing products. And Pinduoduo has no control over what customers actually receive. The merchants themselves are generally factories, manufacturers, suppliers across China. And Pinduoduo isn't really even seeing the product that these suppliers ship. So they don't know what is a knockoff, a scam, or never shipped to the customers in the first place. And I would also hazard a guess that there are so many products on the website, on the app, that they could never, they would never have the bandwidth to capture every scam, knockoff, dangerous item, disappointment, etc. It's just too big. In fact, industry analysts have some concerns about this model. A website full of knockoffs is both a legal liability and a customer service liability. Pinduoduo itself only makes about a dollar and some change off of each customer every year. So to make this business work, as of 2018, it was not profitable. It needs to bring in more and more and more customers. When you build a business that makes only about a dollar off of each customer, you're making the conscious decision to run a business that relies on volume. If you want to make a billion dollars per year, 
you need to sell to 1 billion customers. And as of 2018, analysts were concerned that Pinduoduo did not have enough potential customers in China to get to that point. And a site full of knockoffs and low-quality products weren't going to bring in younger, savvier customers who, for the most part, are more brand-focused in the first place. So what's a company to do? How do you grow a company like that? We're getting to that, I promise. So do you watch the Super Bowl? You're probably not surprised to hear that I usually do not, unless I've been invited to a Super Bowl party featuring a lot of dips. I love dip. I would say dip is like my number one food choice. And if I had my way, I would just have a different dip for every meal (laughs) with some vegetables, okay, to dip in it. You know, I'm going to be a little like healthy here or whatever. Since Dustin and I don't really have any friends here in Austin, and we particularly do not have dip-loving friends here, we don't have cable. Naturally, we did not watch the Super Bowl. In fact, I'm guessing, since it was a Sunday, I was probably working on an episode of this podcast, which I usually do from the time I wake up on Sunday until I go to bed, and there's never dip involved, which I realized I need to work on that. (laughs) But despite not watching the game, All night, I received DMs and emails from members of the Close Horse community telling me about a commercial that aired during the game for a new shopping app called Timu. So, of course, I watched the commercial, and it's it's pretty terrible, actually. (laughs) A horrible song urges customers that they will feel so rich and shop like a billionaire with all of the low prices on Timu. The commercial itself features a bedazzled red gown for a mere $9.99, among many other unbelievable bargains. And I literally mean unbelievable. Like, there's no way you're getting that gown for $9.99. It is the very definition of too cheap to be true. Timu actually paid to air that ad twice during the Super Bowl, which was not a cheap undertaking. And despite launching just six months earlier, its app before the Super Bowl commercials had already been installed more than 19 million times here in the US. But Timu was officially making an investment in reaching even more customers, possibly lower income rural customers who weren't super app shopping savvy, via these Super Bowl spots. They're trying to reach that that segment we always talk about, Middle America. And it worked because after the Super Bowl, app downloads increased to 24 million. A visit to the Timu website, which I had never visited before today, I literally have it open in another window right now, features so much stuff, I don't even know where to begin. There's a roll of 5,000 cute animal stickers for a mere $1.99. They are definitely knockoffs of Squishmallow's art. There is, this perplexes me, it concerns me, purple color correcting foam for teeth, I guess to make them whiter, for a mere $4.94. I'm no dentist, but it seems like a bad idea. There is a dryer vent cleaning brush for $2.28 for all of you laundry fans. There is an ergonomically designed device for removing corn from the cob 
for $1.58. You don't need it. You can do it with a knife, I promise. Um, and there are all kinds of pumpkin teas. I mean, we are getting into pumpkin spice season for $7.19. Nothing is branded. The photography is a bit... Mm, inconsistent, almost as if the photos were taken by a lot of different people. And in that way, it's not unlike what we're seeing on Amazon with a lot of, you know, third-party sellers selling us unbranded products. And to be fair, Amazon has proven that many, many customers will always prioritize low prices over any kind of brand loyalty or fancy product photography. Timu is just riding that wave, although the website is just like, it's so chaotic, it's overwhelming, but you can't look away. There's an obvious, like so obvious knockoff of the iconic Urban Decay Naked's eyeshadow palette for $4.27, 12 kitchen sponges for $1.96, 30 Sanrio, and I'm going to put that in quotes because this is definitely not licensed, 30 Sanrio Croc Charms for $6.99, and a plushie that is a stack of pancakes with a cat face, it's super adorable, for $8.48. That's just the beginning. Like I said, you kind of can't look away because there's so much weird stuff that you find yourself thinking like, don't. Do I need that? Would that improve my life? It, it might. Sometimes it is hard to take corn off the cob, even though I barely ever make corn on the cob. Do I need 5,000 cute animal stickers? This is what starts to happen, right? I have literally spent all of five minutes on this website, and I'm like, whoa. Like, like I feel like I need to stare at a blank white wall for about 20 minutes just to, like, clear my head. I can't even imagine having this on my phone as an app, just like scrolling away as I drink coffee in the morning or I can't fall asleep at night because it's just as entertaining and sort of vast as scrolling away on TikTok or Reddit. There's always something new to see and there's probably never an end. It's it's shopping masquerading as entertainment. Of course, There's also a spinning wheel offering me an additional deal, lots of timers running out on additional discounts, and icons showing me who just bought the three-pack of sports bras. I believe they were actually not called sports bras. They were called sporty bras, which maybe means they're not very supportive. I'm not sure. Suction cup soap dishes, which of your friends bought one of them? You'll find out if you stay on there long enough. A banner across the top promises free shipping and returns, but it also has a timer saying that the free shipping on all orders will run out in nine hours and 54 minutes and 16 seconds, so don't delay. There's concurrently, at the same time, I don't know how, an anniversary sale and lightning deals. I'm also reminded that I might have an even better experience if I download the app and create an account because then I'll get better recommendations and see what my friends are buying. If all of this sounds a little bit familiar to you, that's because it should. Timu is owned by Pintoduo, and it's part of a larger plan to acquire more customers and drive more revenue for the company. And the model is the same in every way 
as Pinto Duo. Sell lots of stuff at low prices. All the stuff they sell is shipped directly from factories and suppliers, as Timu is just the platform that connects the suppliers to customers. And it has that gamified shopping experience. Customers receive free products for suggesting stuff to their friends and sharing their purchases, all of the weird discounts. The same problems that Pinduoduo faces in China are found on the Timu website. Like I said, I spent a few minutes scrolling and I found at least a dozen copies of other products, brands, and designers. I wasn't even looking that hard. Some very light digging on Reddit uncovered customers who never received their order or thought they were ordering an Apple Watch and received a random no-name cell phone instead. The subreddit for USPS, as in the United States Postal Service Workers, discusses Timu more than you might expect. There's the nonstop flow of Timu packages, which they some are saying are slowing down. I hope that's true. There's the way the orange of Timu's shipping boxes rubs off on their skin and clothing. And even one of them posted a listing for a roll of USPS Forever stamps that they found on the Timu app. A hot deal for sure. Stamps are expensive. The thing is, these are being sold as real stamps, but in fact, they are not, and anyone using them could definitely be in legal trouble. At the same time, other Reddit posts rave about buying knockoff Nintendo Switches for like $7, and Dustin said he's pretty sure that some people who are like working on guitars and other electronics have had success buying random parts from Timu. <sighs> Timu might succeed and grow. Right now, it is the second most downloaded app in the U.S., so it, it really might take off, and, and it might not. But either way, platforms like Timu and Shein are changing what shopping is like for us. For one, both platforms promise easy and cheap access to just about any item we want, along with lots of other products we didn't know we wanted until we saw them. And they also change the way products and orders make their way around the globe. Go to Best Buy or Target right now, and almost everything in the stores, it was made in China. But first, it was bought by the retailer, let's say Target. It was shipped overseas in a big order with a bunch of other stuff that Target ordered. It was received in the warehouse, then it was sent out to the Target stores or stocked on the Target website. There were so many touch points along the way for quality control. So anything egregiously disappointing or dangerous was filtered out before reaching customers. And if customers buy something and it's defective or dangerous or injures them, they can hold Target accountable. But that process is slow. Companies like Shein and Timu cut out the middleman, having the factory shipped directly to the customers. Sure, you lose the quality control. You lose access to holding someone accountable when they sell you something dangerous or defective or wildly disappointing. But you get the product so much faster. That's how Shein can get a knockoff into the hands of a customer in the same month the original was launched in the first place. And customers are voting for that. Customers are saying, I don't need to be able to hold anyone responsible. I don't need to know if this is a knockoff. I don't even need to be impressed by the quality or longevity of this product. 
I just want it to be cheap and fast, and I want it now. We talk a lot about how the fast fashion era has changed customer behavior, and it's also kind of changed, like, the expectations of customers, right? Like, I talked two episodes ago about how we've kind of just gotten used to things not being great, not fitting well, being kind of crappy fabrics, not lasting very long, expecting very little use or wear out of it. We want stuff fast, cheap, and easily, and we want constant newness. And fast fashion made us expect that as the norm while caring less about quality, longevity, integrity, right? Now, platforms like Shein and Timu are upping the ante, offering it even faster, even cheaper, and even more of everything. This is the era of ultra-fast fashion. What are we going to sacrifice now to have more, faster, and cheaper? Scary, right? It feels, it feels so dystopic to me. Then you add that layer of what's happening in Pinduoduo's corporate offices, meaning also Timu's corporate offices, and it makes it even more depressing and just so frustrating to me. On top of all that, a report issued in June by the U.S. House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, ooh, that's a mouthful, said that Timu had failed to, quote, maintain even the facade of a meaningful compliance program for its supply chains and was most likely importing products into the United States that were made with forced labor, quote, on a regular basis. In fact, the report went on to say, American consumers should know that there's an extremely high risk that Timu's supply chains are contaminated with forced labor. Furthermore, Timu's business model is, quote, to avoid bearing responsibility for compliance with the UFLPA and other prohibitions on forced labor while relying on tens of thousands of Chinese suppliers to ship goods directly to U.S. customers. The UFLPA is the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which was passed in 2021 to prevent products manufactured using the forced labor of Uyghur Muslims to prevent those products from getting into the United States. It's a really big deal. We talked about the Uyghur Muslims constantly here on the podcast and not talking about it enough. So I'm making a note to cover an update of that very soon. But the UFLPA is a really big deal. And it seems as if both Timu and Shein are trying to get around it by being like, well, we ask our suppliers not to use forced labor. That's all we know, but we don't make the stuff, so we're not responsible. And at this moment, Congress is pressing Timu, Shein, and Adidas and Nike for more information about their supply chains and what they're doing to keep forced labor out of it, because their investigation indicates that all four of these companies are not doing everything they can to ensure that they are not selling products made with forced labor. I just want to say again, I'm going to read this quote again from that report, which I will share the full report in the show notes. American consumers should know there's an extremely high risk that Timu's supply chains are contaminated with forced labor. 
Meaning, Timu is selling stuff made by people who are their slaves. That's is any low price, any speed of delivery, any free shipping, any infinite assortment of products worth the abuse of people, the exploitation of people, people denied their freedom and forced to work? No. I don't even think we should have to answer that question because we know. We know what the answer is there. I'll just end this segment, this very, very upsetting segment, by adding that now Sheehan is suing Timu, and Timu is fighting back. Sheehan claims that Timu is paying influencers to say things like, Sheehan is not the only cheap option for clothing. Check Timu.com out. Cheaper and way better quality. Doubt it but maybe cheaper. Timu counters that Shein is forcing suppliers to only sell on their platform, which has forced Timu to pull 10,000 product listings from their website since October. So they're just battling it out. It's like Godzilla versus Godzilla over here, right? Just two big monsters fighting. And there's a part of me that just doesn't want to care. I just, like, about their legal fight, like, I just don't want to care about it. I don't care who wins, right? It's like seeing two people you despise fighting in a bar. You don't want to get involved because you don't like them, and you don't care if one of them gets punched in the face because they probably deserve it. But if you don't intervene, someone innocent is going to be hit with, like, a flying chair or pushed over or cut themselves in some broken glass. They're going to be dragged into this. The bar is going to get shut down. Whatever. So you have to break it up, right? You have to care about it. People across the world are already being hurt by these two brands, by Shein and Timu. Think about the forced labor, the corporate employees required to work more than 300 hours each month, the customers getting shitty, disappointing products, the postal workers turning orange from the Timu boxes, the stuff, the stuff piling up in the landfills, the environmental impact of all that production and shipping. We have to care about this stuff, even if we don't partake in the shopping. We have to tell our friends what's really happening. We have to spread the word. Because unfortunately, just skipping Timu or Shan is not going to be enough because their impact is so disastrous and it's growing with every day. And I often wonder, Shein has been taking down Zara and H&M by beating them at their game with lower prices and more options faster than ever, right? But who will come along and eclipse Shein by turning that all up a notch, by being even cheaper, even faster, having even more stuff? I don't want to know, but I know that I have to care. We all have to care. Have you ever stood in front of a closet brimming with clothes yet felt you had absolutely nothing to wear? And at the same time, you don't want to buy more and more new stuff? No way. Well then, I'm excited to tell you about the Lucky Sweater app. This is not your typical fashion app, but a community-driven trading platform designed to revitalize 
how you engage with your wardrobe. I even did an episode with their co-founder and CEO, Carly, and I am an avid fan, just a major fan, of what Lucky Sweater is doing. Lucky Sweater disrupts the traditional cycle of buy, wear, discard by fostering communities where cherished fashion pieces and craft supplies can be traded. Yes, that's right. This is an app for swapping, not shopping, allowing you to refresh your wardrobe, discover new brands, and develop your true personal style with a trusted community and without the burdensome baggage of overconsumption. We're all over that now, right? There are two vibrant communities within the Lucky Sweater app. The slow fashion community trades a treasure trove of sustainable brand pieces from Nettle Studios, Elizabeth Suzanne, Ilana Cohn, and so much more. Then there is the me-made community where knitters, sewists, and DIY enthusiasts trade handmade pieces and surplus supplies. And the exciting news is... Lucky Sweater is set to expand to more communities, such as those focused on thrifted items, vintage fashion, and even children's clothing. I can't wait. But the trading is not all that's great about Lucky Sweater. Folks share advice and outfit and project inspiration in the community sections of the app. I mean, it's just, it's all about community. Someone needs to come up with a better name for an app that conveys the connections within it. If you're ready to make a sustainable and fun shift in your wardrobe, go ahead and download Lucky Sweater today from the App Store or Google Play Store and use the invite code CLOSEHORSE to join in. That's invite code CLOSEHORSE. Happy trading! Okay, well... I know that I need a major palate cleanser after talking so much about Timu and ultra fast fashion. And you know what will be perfect? A conversation about sewing. So let's jump into my convo with Zoe. Okay, and I'm going to ask you, Zoe, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I'm very excited. Um, my name's Zoe. I am a sewing obsessive, <laughs> I think. Um, I am a sewing blogger. I am a writer. Um, I am a sewing teacher and I am also a podcaster because I have a podcast called Check Your Thread, which is all about how to sew more sustainably. And I'm excited to have you here today because you know, we, we are a community full of sewers or people, sewists, not sewers. And oh, I use both. I use both. Okay, I think the problem is that sewer looks like the word is the word sewer and that's kind yes. of unseemly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're a community full of people who make things and I get so many questions about sewing and how sewing can be more sustainable, how it can be more budget friendly and how it can be a part of a more sustainable lifestyle. So we're going to talk all about that today. Well, that's like my whole life. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> you're, the, you're the person for the job, right? So how long have you been sewing? Um, I have been sewing like a lot of people kind of since they were a kid, really, on and mm-hmm. off. My um, my mum was a seamstress um, on and off and my Lucky. nan was. Um, kind of yes and no, really. I think because it was her job, 
um, she didn't actually present it to me as a way that it was like a fun, creative activity, you know? It <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. Yeah, like it was more a, an activity that she did to make money, you know, like when I was little and she would be mm -hmm. doing some dressmaking and alterations. Plus, she herself is very small, so she was always altering garments for herself, like raising hems and, you know, sleeve lengths and stuff. And that is... I mean, arguably not the most fun um, <laughs> sewing activity. Um, so, yeah, I never kind of really had it presented to me as it's like a, you know, a fun creative thing. So although I was sewing a bit as a kid, it actually took me quite a while throughout my teens of, you know, trying different kind of creative mediums and creative disciplines to kind of figure out what really was going to be for me. And then eventually by the, I guess by the time I was about 19, I'd kind of come back to sewing as something that could actually be kind of creative and, and, uh, and interesting. So then I went on to study fashion design at university. Um, but I quickly found that I'm not a great designer I'm kind of better <laughs> at making and uh, like the pattern cutting and the construction really interested me um so yeah so that's kind of how I got into it and then from then I was kind of sewing on and off like always making like bags to sell and little side projects and stuff and then eventually um I got a job in the quote-unquote fashion industry um <laughs> as a production assistant so ordering all the the trims and and, you know, everything that goes into a garment apart from the fabric, um, making sure that they were in the right factories. Um, they, this was all, all the mainly made in um, Romania, a lot of the, the stuff that the company I was working for was. Um, and yeah, so just making sure that everything was in the right quantity at the right, you know, in the right factory for, for the orders that we were creating. Um, and I quickly got super disillusioned with the fashion industry. Um, it, we weren't using the term like fast fashion at the time, you know, mm -hmm. but it was definitely that part. Well, I had a few jobs in fashion, but that was the one that was like really the straw that broke the camel's back for me. <laughs> um, and it was kind of at the time where I was personally in my own life starting to think about you know, like how I could live more sustainably. Although mm -hmm. once again, that wasn't really a term that we were using necessarily. Um, and just thinking about how in my own life I could extract myself from buying cheap, ready to make, you know, ready to wear clothes mm -hmm. that didn't really feel like me, didn't really express who I was. I couldn't afford like the cool, nice stuff. Um, and I kind of then kind of discovered the online sewing community that was kind of burgeoning I guess this was around maybe like 2007 something like that so there was various kind of community blogs and forums and stuff was starting out and the kind of indie pattern scene was just just starting and it was all super exciting I think there was actually a lot of parallels going on with what was going on in knitting at the time you know like that mm, yeah yeah you know that whole like stitch and bitch kind of phenomenon oh, that's how I got into it with yes totally. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So it was that same kind of mindset, that kind of like DIY, do it yourself, lots of people sharing their projects, sharing their ideas, sharing their hacks. It was all really quite rough and ready and everyone was super supportive, you know, and it just felt such a lovely 
place on the internet to be and really inspiring. Mm -hmm. And also I didn't have much money and everyone was doing everything on a shoestring, you know, and it was like, (laughs) this is like, this is where I belong. And I got so inspired. Um, And I actually then quit that job, um, ran away to Spain for a couple of years. And at that point, I really, really got deep into making my own wardrobe and extracting myself from shop-bought clothing. So that would have been about, yeah, 2008, 2009. So I've kind of not really bought clothing apart from like underwear since since about then really yeah that's amazing <laughs> that's amazing sounds exhausting I, now I think of it <laughs> uh, yeah seriously uh you, you touched on a few things there that I think are really important to talk about and one is you talked about your mother sort of not making sewing sundry fun or cool yeah. or creative and I felt I think a lot of listeners probably are feeling that because I think for our mother's generation and previous generations it really was a chore yeah absolutely. you know and even you know my mom was not a great sewer you know every once in a while she would sew something like a costume or something and but she you know she could do hemming repairs that kind of thing and yeah she became the person in the family who had to hem everybody's pants you know what I mean yeah that's and not it fun. just it it's just not fun right and for me, like there was part of me that's like, I think sewing might be really cool, um, but it, it doesn't seem like it yeah. based on my mom's reaction. And Absolutely. then taking like sewing and home economics class in middle school, uh, first off, we sewed an apron, which is so boring. And <laughs> yeah, to do some more chores. Cool. I know. Exactly. Exactly. Because you were intended to wear it for the second half of the year when you learned how to cook. <laughs> and both, it's interesting because I, I love cooking, like learning new recipes, cooking for other people. It's like one of my favorite things. And even when I'm working all the time, I generally cook a full dinner every night wow. just because it's like... It's just a nice creative outlet that is sort of like a basic need also because you have to eat. And even the way we were taught to cook, it wasn't about, you know, creativity or getting any sort of joy from either cooking or consuming it. It was like cooking to get it done, to take care of people, to uphold your responsibility, to stick to a budget. And sewing was really similar that way. I remember being very disappointed. I had, I was so excited when I went to the store to get the fabric to make this apron. And I was like, I'm going to be sewing all the time now. <laughs> and then we sat down to do it. And I was like, wow, this is really dull. And we had to practice all these different stitches on cards. And I hated oh, it. No. And I still to this day, I'm the worst at hemming because I have like a mental block on it. I think because that lesson was really tedious. Yeah. Um, and I remember sewing this apron and being like, this is boring. I hate this. Yeah. This is so stupid. And I didn't sew again until I was an adult. And it was around that same time when everybody was starting to get into it. And yeah. I was like, wow, I could be altering clothes all the time. I could be making things. And other people are interested in this too. Finally, we're saying like, hey, sewing is interesting and useful and a creative expression. Yeah. And that was totally different than the way it was presented to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what you were saying there about how your mum kind of became the default person that did all the hemming Mm -hmm. or making the fancy dress outfits. And I think especially until I guess the 90s when ready to wear stuff started to become a bit cheaper, it was often, you know, became a role of a mother to make some clothing for their family mm-hmm. because it was cheaper than 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 buying ready to wear clothing and and it's interesting actually because sometimes when i teach like a, a sewing class often i teach beginners 
and I'll like kind of, you know, have a little bit of a warm up at the beginning of a class and I get everyone to kind of, you know, talk about who they are and talk about like what inspired them to kind of sign up to the class. And invariably I'll get at least one person going, oh, my mum made all our clothes. And then I thought, oh, it's really nice. You want this connection with your mum. And then a little while later, I started thinking like, yeah, but did she enjoy it? You know, like you've got the nostalgia of wearing those clothes that your mum made. And obviously you love your mum. Um, but maybe she didn't <laughs> love making them, you know, she <laughs> loved you. But then I just, I just think about, yeah, like I, no one asked these women, <laughs> you know, no. it was just expected, I think, you know. For sure. And I think there was a little bit of uh, a change um, when our mothers were kids where suddenly like clothes sewn by your mom weren't as cool. Mm. So then you have that job of like sewing for your family and everybody's kind of like, not cool. <laughs> I'd rather have something from a store. Yeah. I remember yeah. my mom saying that to me. Yeah. Like my, wait, it was who? It was my great, great grandmother lived with my mom at, mom's family when my mom was growing up and she was one of those people who could sew and cook anything and so she was making my mom's clothes and she was like oh it make me so mad i just wanted to go to the store and get something new mm. and and store made and she would be sewing it and you know she would try to like buy patterns that were cool and it still just made me so mad and i look back and i'm just like why was i such a jerk yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. But you do, you do on your podcast like such a good job of like tracking, you know, consumerism, and it's mm -hmm. not it's not by accident that we were starting to, you know, that mental shift of like, oh no, I want the stuff from the store. That's not an accident. That was, you know, that's deliberate, wasn't it? Like advertising has oh. deliberately made us think that way. For sure, for sure, yeah. And I also think that. You know, if we were still sewing our own clothes as as the, the majority of us were still doing that, or at least sewing half of our clothes or mm. even a quarter of our clothes, I think we would have a really different relationship with shopping as well. And we mm. would ask ourselves, why are things so cheap? I don't think fast fashion as a business model would have been successful as it's been because we would say this doesn't add up pretty yeah. early on. We would say, like, how could that dress only be $20. I just made a dress last week and it was $50 worth of fabric and took me, you know, hours upon hours. Like yeah. nothing makes any sense. And I think it's because they we all shifted away from even understanding how garments are made. I mean, you know, people think that robots make clothes yes, or machines. Absolutely. Or as if you as if you just thread up the sewing machine and kick back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You press and watch start. a movie. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like whips out some clothes. I'm like, no, sewing, I mean, you know, I'm preaching the choir here. It's such hard work. It's you have to have so much focus. There's so much time you spent like ripping things out and starting over again. Or Yeah. But the thing is, most people that are making clothing, they're not making clothing. They're just doing one process, aren't they? Mm -hmm. All day, all week, hours on end. Yeah. And that has got to be even, that's got to be more tiring, more demoralizing. <laughs> yeah, you're just sewing one sleeve. That's yeah, all you, you don't get the joy of all even day. learning yeah. different skills and seeing how it all comes together and being no. part of it. You're just literally being treated like, yeah, like a machine yeah. just to do that one. Like a machine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, another thing you just talked about that uh, really struck me is thinking about, you know, fast fashion in the UK. Uh, when I worked, one of the 
brands I worked for, uh, ModCloth, we would go to London quite a bit to meet with vendors. We had a lot of vendors mm. there who were making clothes in the UK or in Romania, somewhere in Eastern Europe. Yeah. And, you know, there was this part. Then I was like, oh, well, this must not be fast fashion. I mean, oh, really? So naive, That's so so naive of me. So naive of me because, you know, it's not it's not coming from China or India. I mean, this was years ago before I like really learned the story. And we've seen stuff come out, like even, you know, Boohoo is making clothes domestically in the UK and not paying people, right? Yeah. They've been accused of wage theft and all kinds of other stuff. Um, but the UK does have its like sort of own variety of fast fashion that is a little bit different, you know, like to go to the high street there, the brands are different. They have different names, right? Um, but they are doing the same thing. Yeah, you know? but we still like, you know, the, the main brands are still like, you know, Zara, Mango, mm-hmm. H&M. They're still the, mm-hmm. the, the main ones on the high street, really. Yeah, definitely. So it's um, the same model. Yeah. And then maybe some of the factories uh, located different places. But you're right. There's still um, there's still actually some – actually, in, in lockdown, there was uh, – at the towards the beginning of the pandemic and the, the lockdown, there was this um, kind of revelation that – there was a sweatshop in Leicester and loads of people had come down oh, with COVID. Oh, yeah. So there is still actually sweatshops in the UK. It's just, you know, they don't don't get reported on very much because mm-hmm. it is obviously less. But I think that to go back to what you were saying before, I think that one of the reasons why, you know, it's become so ubiquitous is that we've just been taught to like forget and and I think once again I think this is deliberate like we've been taught to completely ignore quality so there's like you know you're you know the people trying to make things that are gonna last and we've just been trained out of even considering how long something is going to last, haven't we? Yeah, it's true. I mean, I know that Forever 21 isn't as big in the UK, um, although I remember there being one like on Oxford Circle and it was like very, very much marketing itself as yeah. just like Los Angeles brand, which made me laugh coming there from LA and seeing it there. Um, but Forever 21 was the first like really big fast fashion chain mm. here in the United States. And in the beginning, shopping there felt very uncomfortable for me because I I knew that stuff would only last one or two wears and it would fit strangely and you'd have to safety pin it all together to go out. I mean, obviously you weren't going to get out the sewing machine and doing very much to this because it might not survive it. It's not like it had any seam allowance or anything. And uh, I, at the beginning was like, well, this seems so silly to waste my hard earned money on something I can only wear once or twice. And then over time, that just becomes the norm and you yeah. don't think about it anymore. And you're like, well, I did wear it five times. So of course now yeah, it's somehow that's okay. Yeah. Like yeah, we've, we've been yeah. trying to accept that. Yeah. It's, it happened very slowly and it was a, a mental shift for so many people. And you know, that's still going on with people buying just boatloads of clothes from Shein. Those, mm. the quality there is also pretty, pretty terrible, yeah. but it's in line with anything else you could buy in the fast fashion realm right now. Yeah. But I can't remember when I was like a kind of in my maybe late teens, early twenties, going to H and M, and some of that stuff was actually pretty well made. You it know? was, it was. I have, I still have clothes that are from H and M in the yeah. early part of the century. It was, there was definitely a change in H and M specifically where you're like, wow. Like I hadn't gone to H and M in a really long time, and I went a couple years ago looking for something specific for a friend of mine who was ill and in the hospital needed like sweatpants mm. and. And 
I went into H&M because I couldn't find any sweatpants at the mall. It was really, I was like, where do sweatpants come from? I don't even know. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, H&M will have sweatpants, surely, right? And I was shocked by how how paper thin a lot of the mm. fabrics were yeah. and how poor the sewing was and how bad the buttons were. And just, it was all very shocking to me because yeah. I remember around like 2008, 2009, 2010, going to H&M in New York City. Uh, there was one that was near, a huge one that was near a building where I always went for vendor appointments. And I would always treat myself to something at H&M. And it wasn't cheap there. Like the prices were higher than Forever 21, for example. Mm. Um, but, you know, not as high as going to like Urban Outfitters. And th the stuff that I bought there was such nice quality. Yeah. It lasted for a long time or I resold it or yeah. turned it into other things. And uh, that's not the case now. I mean, no. it's just like our our standards for what we are okay with are so low. Yeah. Absolutely. It's really, and it's it's filtered into more expensive brands as well, where you're just like, why why did you put the zipper in this? This is the $300 dress. So our expectations have just, have just changed so much, yeah. which is why I get really excited about the prospect of more and more people learning, sewing, working into their lives. I mean, you're obviously like going above and beyond by sewing everything. And I don't have that expectation for a lot of people, but I do think that it it can be good in so many ways because you can make things that fit you, that you like, that you want to have a long-term relationship with, that are truly yeah. what you want instead of what is close to what you want or maybe far away from what you want, but yeah. there. Absolutely. Well, that's it, isn't it? Even if you're, if whatever you're buying in a shop, even if it's, you know, you really like it. There's always going to be something about it that it's like, mm -hmm. oh, it's just like a bit tight at the neck or I wouldn't have quite had the sleeve like that. There's always something. And when you make a garment, like you have to make every single choice to make that garment come into existence. You know, you have to choose the color. You have to choose what sleeve shape. You have to choose the buttons or the zip. You know, you have to make every single decision. So you can't help but have your personality reflected in that garment you know you can't help but have that then as something I mean, it doesn't always work out but you know as something that you are connected with to a greater degree even if you it's something that you really love from a shop like it's it's kind of you're in it you know whether mm -hmm. you think of it in that terms or not you know yeah yeah definitely and I think we've been kind of just shortchanging ourselves for a really long time because we've gotten accustomed to nothing being great yeah Absolutely. It's really depressing. Yeah. I mean, that's our money that we spend and all these resources go into it and people experience horrible things making it. And when you think about it, the whole story is so sad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, the thing is, it's like, it's, it's not necessarily more sustainable to sew right. something. Right. You know, there are lots yeah. of caveats <laughs> when it comes to saying it's more sustainable to sew. And... In some cases, yes, that's true. And there are other benefits from sewing stuff. You know, for example, there is a lot of mental health benefits that you can mm -hmm. enjoy from sewing in the same way that some people might get enjoyment from maybe doing ceramics or painting or going for a jog or, you know, it can be a really nice outlet for some people. It's a really good way to get away from a screen, especially if that's your, mm -hmm. you know, that's your day job and you're just staring at a screen all the time. There's something really, really lovely about having the tactile, you know, enjoyment of, of, 
of the fabric and and mm-hmm. um, um, creating something. And I think as well, I mean, this is something that I definitely found when I had really small children, like making something that stays made, you know, like, <laughs> you know, you spend so much time doing like piles of laundry and washing up and tidying up mm-hmm. and, and it just gets undone in like a split second, but you can make something, you can slowly build it and it can then it exists and you did that. And, and that is so fulfilling, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you don't get that in a lot of things you do in life, really. Yeah. And then you get to use it as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's a, it's a double benefit. So, okay. We have a lot to talk about. We even do. Just in what you just said. So I know. I know. I, I kind of went in there too quick. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's rewind. We're going to go back a few questions here. Okay. Um, why did you start a podcast about sewing? Oh, such a good question. Okay. So I have been blogging about sewing since about 2008 um, because I wanted to be part of that DIY scene, you know, that we were talking about, part of that enjoyable, supportive, creative Mm -hmm. kind of sewing, emerging online sewing scene um, that was happening that felt so exciting. Um, I also had some in real life um, sewing friends that I'd met and um, they kind of egged me on a little bit as well. So I actually started this blog and I didn't know it was necessarily going to be completely about sewing at the time, but um, Um, otherwise I probably would have spent a little bit longer thinking up of a better name, but anyway, um, so I mean, yeah, so sewing and writing about it and thinking about it and talking about what it meant and what it, you know, it became very interlinked. It's almost got to the point where sometimes even talking about the ideas that this was bringing up for me and the exploration of those ideas almost became some in some regards almost more important than the sewing itself or the 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 Mm -hmm. item that I was making like yeah it became a big big part of like communicating about it became a big part of 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 my enjoyment of it and and having feedback and reading what other people were writing what they were thinking and feeling you know through the kind of lens of sewing um and the connected you know the connected um topics like you know, like the Mm -hmm. ethics, we were starting to realize that, you know, clothing wasn't, you know, it was made in kind of problematic circumstances. So we're talking about the ethics, talking about the sustainability and talking about body issues, talking about feminism, you know, so many topics that, you know, all wrapped up in, in sewing and, and adjacent to sewing. So I was just falling absolutely in love with that. Um, And then, kind of blogging started to go oh, another thing about blogging as well it is so time consuming yeah <laughs> you know um yeah so I can completely say why blogging's and then also you know you're putting hours and hours and hours of time into a blog that isn't I mean some people were doing it for money but most of us were just doing it because we loved it and we wanted to kind of be part of it all um but that becomes unsustainable at a certain point in most people's lives. You know, I think it's different maybe if you're in your early 20s and stuff. I don't know, depending on your life. But it's, you know, putting that amount of time and effort into it started to become unsustainable for me, especially when I started having kids and stuff. Um, and then generally the online sewing community tent generally kind of moved over to Instagram as it's, you know, that was where it congregated, you know, and I can completely <laughs> yep. understand that because it's much quicker to take a photo on your phone, write a caption, 
pop it up there rather than crafting a long, you know, a long blog and editing images and all that. Um, so although I liked that immediacy and I enjoy that immediacy and I like to comment and, you know, be part of the scene on there, it felt mm-hmm. like something was missing. It felt like, you know, it's such a limited, I mean, as we were saying before, before we started to record, you know, like it's not a great place for nuanced discussion, you know? <laughs> Let's yeah, say that. I mean, that's like the understatement, but it is <laughs> yes. true. It is so true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, I mean, you've only got so many characters, you know, no one's going to then go on to, you know, see what else you've got to write in the comments and stuff. And it, it, yeah, it was a difficult, I found it, I, I struggle with it as a place to really kind of get a lot of ideas across in a kind of more nuanced, more balanced way. So I kind mm-hmm. of felt a bit of frustration with that. Um, I'd also, I mean, I've also always been, you know, like seeing what's going on out there, getting really inspired by people. There's so many people doing really interesting things. So I was always collecting all these like links and bookmarks and, you know, <laughs> things that I'd found on the internet. And I was kind of like collecting them, collecting, collecting them. Like, why am I, you know, what am I doing with this? You know, like... <laughs> What literally? What am I doing? And then, um, right. <laughs> and then I actually just became just madly in love with listening to podcasts myself. Like mm-hmm. I had me one, too. Yeah, me too. I think that's the gateway. <laughs> I think so too. I mean, it's interesting. Like when I meet people who are, like don't listen to podcasts, I'm like, oh, you are just missing out. Yeah, you or know, people that just like they they listened for a bit once. I'm like what? It didn't become your entire life. What? How? It wasn't like what you did. I mean, like what? I guess my big question for people who who don't listen to podcasts is, what do you do when you're doing laundry or cleaning yeah. the house or cooking dinner or who? I mean, taking a taking a shower. Like what? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't you know you could be like in, yeah. There's like a whole world out there you could be engaging with at the same time. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I first so when I so to go back to my kind of like origin story a little bit. When I moved to Spain and I was really getting into garment sewing whilst I was out there. And then when I moved back to the UK, I didn't want to get another job in fashion because I was just so over that whole thing. And by then I'd already been making my own clothes for a couple of years and it was just, I couldn't even imagine. But, um, so I didn't know what I was going to do basically when we moved back to the UK. But, um, I was really lucky in that I actually managed to get a job as a seamstress, but working for like a textile reuse and recycling charity. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was. it was so fortunate. It was so fortunate. So basically, they are a charity that have a lot of charity shops in London where they sell, you know, secondhand clothing, obviously. Mm-hmm. But they also had, I don't know if they still do, but they definitely used to have this little side kind of range of clothing that was made in a studio in Brighton where I live. And um, it was made by a lot with like a lot of donated fabrics. We get donated fabrics from various companies, but also a lot of like very ubiquitous garments, you know, like sweatshirts, men's button up shirts, jeans, you know, the things that you get charity shops get so many of that they mm-hmm. don't have a high resale value. So we would get donated donations of those, you know, t-shirts, things that you'd get a lot of. And we'd make like a range of, of women's wear clothing doing that. And I, that was just so perfect for me because I was so into sewing and I was into sustainability and I didn't really want to work in the quote unquote fashion industry, but I didn't know what else I was going to do. So I ended up doing that for a couple of years until they closed, uh, closed the studio and then from then, I then got into teaching. And okay. now I can't remember. Oh, yeah. And that was, sorry, I was cooking, but I just remembered where I was going with that. But anyway, but when I was working <laughs> at that studio making the clothing, there was just myself mm-hmm. and my boss um, at, 
in the studio and she went on maternity leave and it was just me and I remembered my friend saying to me like oh you know you should listen to this um this podcast it's called This American Life I'm like uh okay so then when I suddenly found myself on my (laughs) own um it was like oh I should give that a try and I just fell hard for it I was listening to like literally six episodes a day I was obsessed I went through like the back catalogue almost (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and yeah and then and then I got into like radio lab and then you know just went on from there and then when I started teaching sewing classes I was mainly living in Brighton but teaching in London which you know it's a couple of hours each way so that was a great opportunity to do even more podcast listening <laughs> so it became a big part of 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 my life and then when I had uh very small kids they podcast you know podcasts kind of they kind of fulfilled another role for me, really. They kind of almost gave me like a bit of a connection to the like wider world. I know mm-hmm. it sounds a bit silly, but um, you no, know, when I get it. Yeah, when I was yeah. living in a small, you know, small flat with my two kids, and I wasn't working very much at the time, and yeah, and so when they were having naps and stuff like that, it, it gave me something to to kind of yeah to to feel part of, and um, yeah, and it just became such a big part of my of my life. And then I guess it all then kind of came together and something clicked. I was like, Oh, maybe I should start a podcast. (laughs) You know? Um, and it took a, it took a couple of years for that initial idea for until it actually then started. So there was like COVID and also Mm -hmm. like the, 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 um, you know, developing the idea, like I knew I wanted to do something about sewing, but I didn't quite have, the angle and it took a while for it to become like oh it should be about sewing more sustainably also um uh, during the point of kind of prepping for it I also got offered a um a book contract so I wrote a book about mending clothes as well so that kind of delayed starting the podcast by about six months as well so but it was good really because then by the time it was ready like I really knew what it should be about how it should be like it it came Mm -hmm. very fully formed at that point you know Yeah, that's amazing. So you actually picked a really great time, you know, whether fate made this happen or not, to start a podcast about sewing because I have, at least it appears to me since, basically since the pandemic began, we've really seen an increased interest in sewing again. Mm, Yeah. And and why, why do you think that is? Why are more people interested in it? Um. Good question. I think in the UK, at least, I think that the Great British Sewing Bee had a little bit of an effect as well. Um, Have you seen that Mm. program? I have not, but I would not be surprised if that is part of it for sure. For sure. (laughs) It definitely is because, for example, like um, my sewing machine repair person suddenly got very, very busy when the uh, the Great (laughs) British Sewing Bee happened. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's for, it's all the good things, really. It's, Mm -hmm. It's people wanting to move away from screens, at least for their, some of their leisure time. It's people missing out on, yeah, making stuff and, and doing stuff with their hands. I think there's, there's like, um, I mean, everyone approaches it differently, but there can be a real element of play. Um, Mm -hmm. it could be quite meditative as well. It can, you can get into quite, um, 
a kind of flow state with it as well when you're like become really focused on what you're doing and it can be a really good stress relief in that sense I definitely found that for myself you know like I was saying before you know when you make something and it stays made and and it's something that you can control it sounds a bit dark but it's part of your life that you can control (laughs) it is it is true and I also think like Social media, with all of its very unnuanced conversations about things, has also had a major impact on more people getting into sewing because I just, and maybe, you know, obviously the algorithm that we experience, our experience on social media was tailored for us based on Mm. our behavior and interests. But I just felt like in 2020, a lot of people here in the U.S. either got into making bread or they started sewing. And I was seeing more and more people posting about stuff, working on projects. And it was really exciting to me because I hadn't seen that for about 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Well, I think that was it, wasn't it? When everyone was at home and a lot of people either got their machines out or got machines so that they could sew masks. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the machine out. You're like, what else can I make? And I think maybe a lot of people wanted to do hobbies like that, but they didn't have the time until they were like furloughed from work. Also, Mm -hmm. it is quite an accessible hobby as well in terms or pastime or activity compared to say like ceramics or painting, you know, where you have to, you know, you need space, you know, a sewing machine can, you could pop it on your table, put it away again after Mm -hmm. you can, Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody has textiles in their life as well. You know, like you don't have to go to the fabric shop, although you could, you know, order fabric during lockdown. Everyone had something to hand probably that they could, you know, mm-hmm. get going with at least. It, it, I think in terms of, you know, entry level, <laughs> or no, like, you know, cost of entry, like it's fairly low compared to some, some pastimes or some activities that you could have, you know, taken up. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonas is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. 
But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. 
The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. You call out something really important there, which is that everybody has some textiles lying around in one way or another. And we did notice, you know, over the past few years, and it really began that year when people were like, oh, I'm finally at home and having time to Mm. do things, uh, that we saw this rise of people making clothes out of sheets and tea towels and, you know, bath towels and all kinds of other fabrics that already existed that, you know, hadn't really, it hadn't been very popular for quite some time. Mm. And now, you know, seeing something made out of a bed sheet or some old curtains or what have you is, is the norm. You know, we're like, of course, why wouldn't you sew clothes out of that? But I remember in the first few posts I saw coming up on social media where someone was like, look, I made this dress out of these sheets. People being a little like, well, that's weird. Can you really wear that? (laughs) It's like, yeah, you can. And now we wouldn't, we wouldn't bat an eyelash. I'd be like, of course. (laughs) Right. But, you know, it was, it was definitely a big uh, sea change in terms of how we viewed textiles. Right. Mm. And there was a very clear dividing line. And now it's like, oh, actually there's all this stuff that we could be using. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's really cool. And I, I do hope that people continue to sew. And this is like, we've built, like, I don't, it doesn't seem like a lot of people that I know are making bread these days, like, to be honest. <laughs> but I hope that they're still sewing. And I think that they are. Yeah. You know, because I've seen that. But, you know, something, I got a little push notification yesterday about a little news article that I had to read because the headline was about how people kind of feel like they don't have hobbies anymore because there's so much pressure to uh, monetize all your hobbies. Yes. So people yeah. who might have started making bread or sewing in 2020 now feel like it has to. they have to make money off of it. Mm. And I wondered, like, what are your thoughts on that? I definitely agree. I think... I, th- I think you're right. I think a lot of – there is definitely a social pressure to, you know, this whole rise of the side hustle. Um, oh, that's exactly the word phrase that was used in this article multiple <laughs> yeah. times. And, uh, yeah, there, I mean, there's the social pressure, but there's also generally the financial pressure as well, isn't it? Like the cost of living crisis is real and everything is getting so expensive that often you kind of have to find, you know, for many people, not everyone, obviously, mm-hmm. many people do have to kind of find ways to, you know, bring in some extra money. Like I've certainly been thinking about how, you know, I can make some extra money and, you know, do some extra sewing stuff. And so I think that, you know, like maybe there's a lot of people that are going to go back into alterations and, <laughs> and stuff like that as well, which which is fine if that's what they want to, but it's, you know, right. it's kind of sad if they they feel that, that they have to monetize it. But also whenever you make something and people discover that you sew, I have... I mean, I would not even begin to be able to tell you how many times people have gone, oh, you could sell that or you could make those to sell. And it's like, let me unpack fast fashion prices to you and why that would never work and why people would never be able to actually accept the prices that I would Mm -hmm. need to charge for this to be a thing. But yeah, I think when you hear that so much as well, like, oh, that's really nice. You could make that to sell. And even if you don't want to, I guess hearing that again and again might make people think, oh, maybe I should make that to sell. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. I mean, and I think it is this pressure to like, you, you should have a side hustle. I mm. had a boss 
who is a terrible person. I'll just preface that. I mean, she's not a terrible <laughs> person, but she's just like not a compassionate person or mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, and she, we were interviewing people for a role on my team and she said, well, my personal policy is that I don't hire anyone who doesn't have a side hustle. <gasps> and I was like, why? What does that mean? Yeah. And she said, well, because then I know they really care about, you know, getting ahead in the world. And Whoa. I was like... I don't want to hire someone who has to have a side hustle to exist. Like, yeah. like we need to pay them more, yes. you know, like yes. people, it is not natural or healthy. And, and I'm, I fall prey to this and I'm sure you do as well to be working the kind of hours that we work right now. Yeah. So you, you know, have a full-time job and a side mm. hustle and somehow have a social life and like eat and keep yourself clean. And if you've got kids deal with them, like how? <laughs> No, it's I know. I mean, that's like, honestly, like the past two years of my life um, have been like, all I do is work and then work on my side hustle and my other side hustle. And then like, I get to eat and take a shower sometimes, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, like I don't have friends. A, yeah, exactly. Like for friends, what are they? And I think yeah. that like, yeah, they can listen to my podcast if they want to hang out with me. Right, exactly how I'm doing. Uh, it makes me sad that like, there is like, you know, sewing can be just such like a personal thing, a creative expression. And I'm really excited for everyone who's actually been able to like make a living, start a business, Mm. like do this and leave whatever they were doing before that was making them unhappy. But I also, it's okay to just sew for yourself. Yes. I have a lot of respect for people that have really kind of like ring ring fenced their hobby, you know, as their hobby. And, And you have to be really... You know, I was just, I just literally, the podcast episode I just released last week was a chat with me and two of my closest, like in real life sewing buddies. And we were just talking about the litany of ridiculous requests we've had to just hem my daughter's (laughs) curtains. Just do this, just do that. Like you have to be, I mean, there's a whole Instagram account called can you sew this for me i don't know if you've seen it like oh it all, i have it yeah. is always infuriating to me yes. i i uh i was in uh well i'm not was i'm still in this facebook group for people who like this brand sulky which is like they sell a lot of second hand yeah. so i'm in it and someone had posted a photo from a new product launch and it was a dress that i mean the amount of fabric involved in it i can't even begin to speculate because yeah. it's layers and layers and layers um there's a lot of sewing in it like very skilled sewing on top yeah. of that you know you know how it is the more fabric yeah, yeah. It, there is the more the more complicated it is to sew um and i want to say the price was like 350 dollars. and someone said hey this pricing is out of control can <gasps> i know someone can make this for me for cheaper uh, is there anyone in this group or do you recommend anyone? And I was like feeling like my blood pressure rising just reading that because that kind yeah. of that kind of thought always so pushes offensive. my buttons. And I was about to swoop in <laughs> and say something not un- unpleasant, but just like, well, actually, like as a person who works in the industry, like this pricing is makes sense to me. Yeah. And someone else said, well, I'm a seamstress. And I can tell you right now, the bare minimum I would charge you for this is $350. And yes. here's why. It's Brilliant. many hours of work because of XYZ um, pattern cutting, because obviously it's a one-off pattern cut too. And, mm. and you're going to uh, want it to fit fa- you. <laughs> right. And the fabric use is a lot. There's like yards and yards and yards of fabric in this. And uh, the person was like, oh, well, I just found someone who was going to sew it for free. And someone <gasps> was like, who? And she was like, my grandmother. And oh, like, 
the well, pole, bless her grandmother. heart. I know because she's going to be sewing that for a really long time, and you know, hopefully I she's retired and something oh God, fun that's to do. So awful. It's I know. exploitative. Oh, my grandmother will do it. Well, it's really she loves you, not because it's like okay to ask. I know, right? Right, exactly. So I thought I I'm glad that more people are like speaking out about that kind of thing, mm, but it's tough I mean, though cuz yeah. you you get I mean literally, you know, all you need to do is look at that. Can you I can't I don't even follow can you sew this for me account anymore because <laughs> there's too many things to annoy me in the world. I don't need that on top of it, you know, but yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Literally, yeah. it's like people think that you've got nothing else to do. Like you're, you have no ideas of your own and you like to sew. <laughs> so of course you'd like to make my daughter's curtains, you know, like, no, I don't want uh, to make, it's not like I've run out of ideas of things to use my own sewing machine for. <laughs> no, I know. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really... almost like they think that you're doing them a favor, you know, oh, I'm doing you a yeah, favor because like, oh, I've given you a feeling... purpose. Filling this void in your life. Yeah, you were just sitting around, your hands hovering above the sewing machine, but nothing was coming out of it. And, you know, and I also think it goes back to this idea that people think, like, you just load up the fabric, turn it on, and then you kick back and watch Netflix while it sews the dress for you. And, you know, like, especially, like, looking at these dresses with so many layers of fabrics, like... Just Can't even imagine oh, the amount of all gathering. the steps involved. Yeah, exactly. Gathering. As soon as I see it, I try to avoid gathering. I it takes me seven tries to get it right. Yeah, it's um, such a headache. And so, but what's interesting? Okay, so people think that sewing is like really easy, and it, you know, you're all we're all just sitting around waiting for someone to offer to let us sew something for them <laughs> or whatever. But there also is still this like, which we touched on when we first started talking, this belief, this thought out there that home-sewn clothes are somehow inferior, which even saying this makes me, it disgusts me thinking about the kind of clothes I've received when I've ordered from certain brands. <laughs> this idea that like those clothes, like clothes that are mass-produced are more, are superior mm. in terms of quality or longevity to homestone clothes. I know. And, you know, a big part of that is marketing. And that definitely was a very intentional decision back in the middle of the last century to get people to go shopping. But you said something when we were preparing for this conversation that I thought was really interesting, that there's sort of this, like, I don't know, like, maybe this pressure is not the right word, but in the sewist community to make your finished product look as mass-produced as possible. Mm, Yeah, it's, yeah, that's something that I've definitely felt guilty of myself. And I think there's this, I'm trying to track where that comes from and I I can't quite put my finger on it. So I can only imagine that it's a lot of different things, you know. Um, But yeah, there is definitely, it's interesting, isn't it? Because traditionally, and even to this day, things that are handmade in some regards are revered, you know, like couture Mm -hmm. sewing is often like couture garments are one-offs and they are often hand-sewn by incredibly skilled people, you know, and that is revered as a a fantastic thing. You know, some really expensive tailored suit, a lot of those elements will be Mm hand-stitched. So why is that different to something that has been created at home like it's still like a skilled practiced experienced person largely right. who is doing that and it takes a long time to get good at it and then to make something that that then you can wear is such an achievement but I definitely felt that when I was really getting into sewing 
back in about 2008, 2009, making my own clothes. I really had, I had, I struggled to kind of almost trust those garments in the way that I could with a shop-bought garment. Like I think I was convinced that the zip was going to bust it or a seam was going to rip. And I don't know, I don't know where that come from because ultimately like, the machinery is the same you know, the processes that are same. And it took me a long time to realize, and no, actually like my things are less likely to break because I've, for one, I've got a bigger seam allowance. For two, Mm -hmm. I know I've got better quality fabric. So it's less likely to kind of, you know, tear and and rip. Um, I know that the seams are finished better because, you know, I've kind of overlocked them more carefully and I've used stronger thread probably. Like there's so many things that is kind of superior to a lot of fast fashion stuff but still there was this disconnect about whether or not I could really trust them and that is when I started the me made made thing but I know we'll probably Mm. get into that later so I think there is still something really interesting going on between the the difference between like handmade versus homemade you know and I do Mm -hmm. think that largely that has got something to do with the fact that homemade is often done by women or people who mm-hmm. are, you know, assigned female at birth. And there's obviously a great big history of those kind of things, activities being kind of disregarded and, you yep. know, devalued. Just as, you know, like when cooking was suddenly done outside of the home by male chefs, that's elevated <laughs> to an art form. But when it's done day in, day out by, you know, a woman in the home, it's it's treated, you know, much differently. And, and I think that there's definitely an element of that. Definitely what we were talking about before about advertising kind of yeah kind of like making things you know appear so much more glamorous and exciting when they're bought in a shop and there's also the whole experience of shopping isn't it like it's it's obviously a very kind of controlled and considered experience you know from the smells and the sounds and the feel Mm -hmm. and the lighting and the music and all your senses have been considered to to make shopping an exciting and desirable activity otherwise like how else are we going to keep parting away you know with our money you know every single week so there's a lot of things going on I think there's also maybe I think that there's a lot of stigma as well I don't know if stigma is the right word but um I think during the second world war when the clothing was rationed and I know this was more so in the UK than the US but I know that it was rationing as well in the US you know and and certain certainly things weren't as easily accessible and I think that people had to make make do with stuff that was made from home or adapted from stuff that they found and it's not a choice at that point you know it's not Mm -hmm. something that's like fun and exciting it's something that was put upon people in a really stressful time it has a lot of negative connotations of you know and that and that goes through the generations I think as well and I think that when our parents who are you know probably the first generation born after the second world war Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of that, yeah, I'm going to use the word stigma, that stigma, that influence of this kind of negativity of like, oh, I had to make stuff out of what I could find and stuff mm-hmm. at home. And all I wanted to do was go to the shop and feel like a, you know, a glamorous model swanning around, <laughs> you know? So I think there's a lot of elements of that. But I do get so heartened by the fact that, and I, I know that there always was, and I think as we were talking about that kind of DIY community that existed in that kind of early, you know, early, mid, late 2000s, that was definitely a bit of a pushback and that was awesome to see. Um, and then I think, again, nowadays, I think that there is a real 
embracing uh, from the sewing community and and sister communities <laughs> um, <laughs> um, towards things that are less manufactured are less akin to shop bought things like for example there is definitely and I don't want to make it sound like these are all brand new things because obviously they're not and obviously they're people who've been doing this like forever but there's definitely an increased interest in natural dyeing and people trying to dye things themselves there's definitely an increased interest in visible mending um, mm-hmm. and there's also I've really discovered more recently there's a real there's a growing interest in people actually hand stitching entire garments which is a real kind of pushback against um, making your clothes look like they're shop bought because instantly as soon as you start stitching something by hand you know with the actual seams the top stitching everything like you are definitely you know you are do you know what I mean like you, you kind of say that this yeah. is this is not a shop bought thing this is something right. I created by hand and I'm celebrating that and I think that's that's what's different there's a, a new celebration of of an embracing of of a lot of these kind of methods and techniques that have been around for ages and that's really exciting to see and I do see that as a big pushback against a lot of the consumerism and a lot of the consumerism and more commercialization of the sewing industry as well I think that's that's been a big trend Mm, mm -hmm. since I mean everything's got a lot sleeker it's a lot less you know and I and it's in some senses it's good like the more you know for example sewing patterns like what we can now expect from an indie sewing pattern now has changed very very much from 15 years ago you know Mm-hmm. And that is good because we know that the quality is going to be there. It's going to be have a largely um, most sewing pattern companies are kind of making larger size ranges and they would have been tested more carefully. And and that's really good. However, it has lost a little bit of that kind of raw DIY, let's have a go kind of yeah. essence, yeah. you know. And there's a lot of companies and businesses that are making a lot of money from home sewers as well. It's become a real industry in and of itself. So I think there's probably some of the pushback maybe against that. I don't know. I hope so, because it's definitely something that makes me feel a bit uncomfortable, you know. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I definitely see that. It. it I do think because there's been such a rise in interest, mm. uh, it definitely is like, oh, this is like a big money making opportunity. Mm. And it. And I hope, you know, like I was saying earlier, that I hope this interest in sewing is not a passing trend. But we mm. have certainly seen trends over the years, uh, specifically in like the handmade craft kind of realm that uh, were big business and and led to a lot of waste. And I think people abandoned, like who can forget scrapbooking? I don't know <laughs> if it was as big in the UK as it here is here in the United States, but suddenly every chain craft store had just aisles upon aisles upon right. aisles of crafts of scrapbooking <laughs> supplies where yeah. it was just like wow wow like stickers and little crystals and frames yeah. and cutouts and y- papers and you name it right yeah. and that was such a huge trend now what's interesting here in the US is like we still see that like if you go to your typical craft or sewing chain store yeah. uh, it's primarily uh, craft projects like that that they're focusing on and like artificial flowers and lots of yeah, decor. Yeah. And even, you know, we don't have as many places here in the United States, especially if you live in a rural area, to go buy fabric right. or yeah. s- actual sewing supplies. Um, 
you have to buy that stuff online. Um, yeah, and, and it's really expensive. It's so expensive. Like, and I do think, you know, that is something that turns people off of sewing. Mm. We live in a world right now where clothes are wildly underpriced. They're yes. cheaper now than they were in the 1990s. And then you were like, well, I don't care. I'm going to make my own clothes. And you go to the fabric store and you walk out like, <laughs> wow, I could have bought three dresses for that price At and least, they would be here yeah. right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and then people are like, oh, well, like that's so expensive. Like, you know, that these like fabric stores are ripping us off or something. And it's like, well, actually like it's the clothing prices that yeah. are the problem. That's yeah. always a really difficult conversation to have with people. Yeah. I mean, that's how much clothes should cost, isn't it? <laughs> like yeah, the price it really of is. A good bit right? of fabric. Yeah. And yeah. a nice pattern. Put those together. That is the price that you should be spending at least on a manufactured garment. Like it just is. But yeah, it is. It's it comes in. It's it is a shock to people. It really is. And and I get it because it isn't super accessible. Like it really isn't. And I touch on try. You know, I've did a whole series on sewing on a budget and and how you can sew for less. <laughs> you know, it's something that I think about. All, in fact, I'm actually writing a book about that at the moment as well, because it's something I'm super passionate about. But yeah, it is. It is expensive. I mean, I, I've literally, I've spent today, I work for an online fabric shop um, one day a week, and I've spent all day cutting out fabric and I can't afford a lot of the fabric that I'm cutting, you know? Yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is expensive and yeah, you know, retailers do get, you know, that bulk discount of buying, you know, entire runs of fabric for their manufacturing, but they're also, I mean, you know, most fabrics being used to make new clothing right now are synthetic Mm. and that's cheaper. And my experience working as a buyer is anytime a design came to the table and we couldn't afford it as is from the first sample, which spoiler, we never could. (laughs) uh, It was always first question was like, okay, we got to swap the fabric. Right. Yeah. You know, that's going to cut the price. Yeah, you know? I remember when I was working at that um, that fast fashion fabric job that I was telling you about that I was ordering the trims. Like one of my jobs was ordering the care labels. So I would get the test reports back from the fabric that had to be externally tested, you know, by law. And I'd get the test reports <laughs> and try and have to figure out, you know, which of the, you know, the logos you could apply to this. And I was thinking this fabric, you know, it's like it's fed so badly on pilling and fading and this and oh. this. And I was like, well, I, I, there's nothing that I can put on this care label that's going to make this garment last, you know, more than more than a couple of washes or at least <laughs> look like something you'd want to wear after a couple of washes, you know? No, it's, it, it is true. It is true, man. I, when I like think about some of the fabrics that we would move forward with because we could afford them, mm. uh, really, really bad, bad stuff. Yeah. Where it is pilling just from someone handling it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but what have we got okay with? I mean, what have we got okay with wrapping our bodies in that and wrapping our kids in that, you know? Agreed. Agreed. Uh, why have we been okay with that? Why do we shortchange ourselves, you know? Yeah. Um. Okay, so, you know, we're going to talk more about sewing, obviously. I, You know, and w- we're obviously very excited about more and more people getting into sewing and the sort of like sewing revolution that we're seeing right now. But sewing is also a privilege. Yes. Um, that is, can be hard. You know, like if you're listening to this and you're like, I 
when would I sew? I totally feel you. Um, so I thought we could just talk a little bit about the ways in which sewing is a privilege because, and I was telling you this when we were preparing for this, every time I post about like shopping secondhand or, you know, anything related to like how we can have a more sustainable lifestyle, someone will swoop in and say, well, I don't understand why everybody isn't just sewing all their clothes <sighs> because that's the most sustainable thing and that's what I do. And I always have to say like, it it doesn't work for everyone, right? Yeah. So and it's not the most sustainable thing either. But anyway, spoiler, we're going to talk about that too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, for one, it takes a lot of time. Mm, you know, and does. if you have kids and multiple jobs and now you have to have a side hustle and all this other stuff, like when when do you sell? Yeah, absolutely. Right. You have to, I mean, there's so many times when I literally, I, you know, it's at the end of the day, finally everyone's in bed or whatever. And then I'm like, okay, I could either like sit on the sofa and watch Married at First Sight or I could do some sewing. What have I got, you know, what have I got the energy for? And and it's tough sometimes to, it was sometimes I try and do both. I sit and watch Married at First Sight whilst I sew. <laughs> but... <laughs> But yeah, you know, you have to, you have to kind of constantly be like, do I have the energy for this? I mean, I think, I mean, some people like I have, you know, younger colleagues who don't have kids and they have like a whole Saturday afternoon to sew if they want. Um, and that is lovely and I'm very happy for them. But, you know, I kind of tend to find that my sewing happens in bursts of 15 minutes, you know. <laughs> And it takes a while and it's it's frustrating, but it's either that or not do any at all and not get any of the benefits that I enjoy from sewing. So I think it's a it is definitely about managing your expectations and being realistic with with what you can achieve. And yeah, you're not gonna have a, a new garment every week, but maybe that's okay, you know? We're gonna talk in a few about how sewing can be very unsustainable. But one thing that I do see often, which I talked to you about before, is like People get into sewing and suddenly they're sewing a new outfit every week or mm. multiple new outfits every week because they have the privilege of time to do that. Yeah. And I don't think anyone needs new clothes every week. Yeah, I just saw something on Instagram. I haven't had a shot. I pinned it so I, I didn't have a chance to kind of <laughs> – I, like, I, kind of like, I saved it to go back to later because I think this is going to be a really good start of a podcast episode. But I saw something about like how basically – we can't have more than five. Did you see that? There's something on Instagram that's basically like, uh, I don't know the source, so I, I, I feel like <laughs> okay. I can't really talk about it yet. But it was something like um, in terms of uh, the, the the resources that we are currently dealing with in the world, people can't have more than five new garments a year. And I thought that is really interesting considering we are now at the moment – on average, people are buying. I think it's about, is it about 70 garments a year or yeah, something? Yeah, and so that actually, you know, the the – the argument using like the earth logic protocol, the earth logic like model is that we should cut our, our consumption of new garments by 75%, which would, mm -hmm. if you use that 70 number, that would get us to, I knew that number off the top of my head. Can you tell it? And like, <laughs> I not, didn't have enough coffee. Um, that would get us to about 18-ish per year we could have. Right. Now that includes underwear and socks and things like that, I would assume, and that's okay. But- I do think like, well, five sounds really extreme, but it also makes sense to me because there is so much clothing out there mm. right now. Yeah. And there's so many textiles that already exist out there yeah. too. So, 
So this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, I mean, like last year, I gave myself a challenge of only buying six lengths of fabric all year. Which oh, wow. is, I mean, considering I work in a fabric shop one day a week. and I That's get a, very tempting. And I get a uh, staff discount. It was tough, but I did it. But I also own fabric. Like I have a modest fabric stash. Plus there are textiles, as we discussed, like in and around my home. There are garments in my wardrobe <laughs> that I'm not wearing. That is a source of fabric. There are many other textiles, you know, and, and I was allowing myself secondhand textiles as well on top of that. But I... I mean, and currently I'm actually on a fabric ban entirely. I'm actually doing a challenge, which is I'm really enjoying um, to kind of get myself more in a more resourceful mindset. Um, but I could talk about that in a bit, maybe. But um, but yeah, I think that limiting fabric is uh, limiting purchases of new fabric is something that I think some sewers need to apply, especially if they have quite a lot already in their cupboards, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In, in flat fabric form. I, I it, it makes me feel a bit icky, the fabric that I have, and I don't have very much compared to a lot of other people. I don't want to, you know, put my <laughs> sense of things onto other people. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like you're sitting on loads of fabric and yet you're buying lots more fabric. And I think that is maybe transferring that fast fashion mindset and shopping habit to just transferring it onto fabric, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I see the same thing happening with people switching from, you know, doing a haul on Shein to doing mm. a haul of secondhand clothing. It's, right. it is, it's unfortunately we, I mean, and this is something that I'm thinking about constantly right now is we mm. all have a lot of work to do to break a lot of habits that have really been ingrained in us since we were children. Mm. You yeah. know, like I, I think about like when I was a kid, I had so much desire for new Barbie stuff all the mm. time and stickers yeah, yeah, yeah. and, you know, you'd watch here in the United States, like they, in the 80s and 90s, they basically like said, you can advertise as much as you want to children. Wow. So you would watch television on a Saturday morning, watching the cartoons, which seems like a very wholesome, acceptable thing to do. And you would be, for every minute of cartoon, you were probably seeing 30 seconds of advertising, all of toys and candy and cereal and mm. things your mom could buy you, right? Yeah. And so it just filled you with this constant desire to have things. And I think we all have a lot of unpacking yeah. to move away yeah, from that. Absolutely. And it's, it's like, it's like, mental work, emotional work that we have to do. And I think that's hard because a lot of people would rather hear, oh, instead of buying this, just buy that. Yes, And absolutely. that's not how it's going to work, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. way more complex than that. So other other aspects of sewing as a privilege, and this is a big one that like we cannot underscore enough, is that access to learning is really limited. Mm, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are different ways to learn, but I mean, going to a sewing class is, is it's expensive. Mm -hmm. um, whether that's, a, you know, at a fabric store or at a sewing school, or you're doing an online sewing thing, or it's a community college, it is really expensive. Um, and you, you could probably muddle through to a certain extent using like YouTube videos and stuff like that. But to be honest, like it's one of those situations where I think with sewing, like you don't know what you don't know. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, so yeah. 
it's hard to kind of muddle along and kind of figure it out yourself without any kind of background or anyone <laughs> to ask. Um, so it is, it is kind of easier to start with some instruction because then at least you've got some basic knowledge and you're not also it's very expensive like the more mistakes you yeah. make are really expensive so Whew. yeah you're probably gonna save you're gonna save fabric probably by kind of having some kind of more comprehensive tuition to begin with I think as well you know Absolutely. And patterns are expensive. And if you cut them out wrong, mm. I mean, I've learned that lesson the very hard way, oh. um, you know, and uh, not always very intuitive, I would no. say, like sewing from a pattern and figuring out your fit. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, like there are certain things that really require a little bit of in-person training uh, that are like, for example, gathering, you know, or yes. God forbid, smocking, you know, things oh. like that, that are very, very challenging. You're not going to probably pick it up from a YouTube video. Yeah. Even I, you know, I really wanted to learn how to knit um, when my daughter was a baby. And so I you know, I didn't have any friends who knit knitted. This was before YouTube. And so I bought a book right. from the store on how to knit. And let me tell you, not the best way to learn. <laughs> I can't um, imagine anything more difficult. It was so difficult. And you know what? It cost me a lot of time and frustration and yarn to learn it. And it was just so funny. Years later, I was knitting next to someone else. And I was like, I always struggle with this thing. And they were like, oh, this? This is all you do. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And uh, you look, that's these... You know, I think that like we've been led to believe we can just like pick up these things like that. And that is probably because it goes back to this idea of like women's work mm. and it being simple and unskilled. But whether it's knitting or embroidery or sewing or weaving or any of these other textile arts, they're really hard. Yeah. If, <laughs> if you've not been exposed to them, if they've not been around you, yeah. you've got nothing to start with. Like you are ground zero. And that is tough. That is really tough. It, not having anyone next to you to be like, sorry, what? What am I doing? That's just so difficult. I can't believe very, you even tried. I'm really impressed you even tried. I did it. The book. I made Yay! so many, so many things out of it. But then years later, someone showed me like a really quick tech technical change that made, I was like, oh, wow. Like I remember the first <laughs> thing I knit, you know, like surely the book mentioned this somewhere, but I didn't, I didn't catch this. It was a very big book. It had mm. a lot of stuff in it. <laughs> in my mind, I was like, okay, so when I pull the yarn through, I want to pull it tightly, right? So that like yeah. this lasts forever, right? <laughs> and so I kept doing that, you know, because I didn't know that like there's this tension that it creates on its own just from doing it, right? You don't need to be pulling things hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You're going to make it fine. smaller. Yeah. And so I kept getting these weird bunched up little things. I would knit a couple <laughs> rows and be like, what, is this a scrunchie? Like what is going wrong here? Yeah, I'm not going to put my arm in that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was like, I have no one to ask about this. <laughs> like, yeah. What I mean, I, I know. And like, I mean, fabric's expensive, but yarn can be really expensive. <laughs> I know. I know. Yarn is so expensive. It's another mm. one where people are like, I don't get it. I could go buy a scarf over at Primark for four dollars. And it's like, yeah, well, like it's, it's different. plastic, but yeah. Yeah, it's plastic, exactly. Um, okay, so the last thing, you know, that like I think can be really I mean, we've already hit on it, like sewing is expensive, you need to know how to do it, you need the time, but you also need the space. And mm. I, I you know where my sewing ha has always happened is at the kitchen table. Yes. Like that's, that's where it's for me, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Well, I completely agree. And this is actually something that I've been really pushing back against 
recently. Um, I actually came up with, kind of by accident, but I'm actually really pleased that I did, came up with this hashtag called Sewing Space Amnesty because I wanted to see what real people's real sewing spaces were like, you know, and I wanted other people to see that not everybody has got this, you know, this perfect craft room that's pristine and it's all got Ikea everything everywhere and it's all white and there's just shells and you've <laughs> got room for every kind of machine you can buy and it's all lined up and it's all perfect because I mean I think most sewing is happening on a kitchen table and I don't want people to feel that that isn't I don't know like I don't want people to feel that that isn't okay or that isn't mm-hmm. proper sewing you know yeah I, think that, I mean there's definitely like I mean, I was talk- I've was i made an episode on this with my friend Shams Eldin Rogers, who's a textile activist. And Shams lives in North America and has a lot more space than myself. So we were kind of <laughs> just having a bit of a laugh about the differences between ge- – I mean, this is obviously vast generalizations. So we very much accepted that it was vast generalizations. But <laughs> the space that um, a lot of homes in North America have, like you might have a, r- a spare room for a craft space or, or, or a basement or something, compared to like small flats in Europe <laughs> – yeah yeah or imagine if you lived in japan where the apartments are even smaller yeah you're probably sewing literally on your oven top aren't you yeah (laughs) like oh your back and your neck would be so miserable you probably store your machine inside the oven when it's switched off exactly exactly i definitely had places like that myself but (laughs) it is it is that i think that we sometimes like let perfection be the enemy of progress where we're saying like okay well i don't have a whole space for this um so I guess I can't do it. And listen, mm. some spaces just don't work for it. You know, even I get frustrated because it's like, okay, well, I've got to bring out the sewing machine, get everything all set up. Mm. But if we want to eat at the table, then I have to take it away. Absolutely. Right? And pack it all yeah. back up in the reverse. And that can also, that's time that a lot of people won't have. Yes. And energy as well. When you're at the end of the day, the last yeah. thing you want to do is just get your heavy machine out, get everything set up. You're like, I've literally got enough energy to do two scenes. Like I can't get everything out as well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that's another privilege is just having the space. And then, you know, like we were saying, the time, the energy, the skill, there's a lot to it. And that's why so many people aren't sewing their clothes. Mm. But that's another reason why I'm really excited about this re-interest, this new renewed interest in hand sewing, because that is something that is more accessible. People mm-hmm. can do it. There's also more opportunities to do it. You can do it on public transport. You can do it in a waiting room. But also people that are, you know, they don't have the physical ability, um, you know, maybe they're sick or maybe they have, a, you know, a long-term illness or it's something that, you know, they don't have the strength to get their machine out sometimes or all the time, you know, it's, it makes sewing more accessible. So I hope that people continue to embrace hand sewing as as legitimate sewing, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's way, I mean, talk about the long game. I mean, you are, like, I, I did, I wore this beautiful dress in Japan in January and we were at this uh, museum um, and it was very busy there because it was the week of New Year's and so right. we will probably never go there again the week of New Year's because everybody <laughs> has off work and so everything is very crowded right. and it, a child stepped on the back of my dress and it had like layers you know it was a sulky right. dress actually oh, no. and they ripped they ripped they ripped the bottom like two feet off about half of the dress. So 
I had to like hold it with my hand for the rest of our museum trip. And then we went to a convenience store and bought a mini sewing kit. And Dustin and I stood out on the street and sewed each end together. And it was like not the best mend, but at least it wasn't dragging on the ground. So I came back and I was like, okay, now I've got to mend it. And it's quite delicate fabric. And it wasn't ripped on the seam. It was like oh. some of it was, but some of it was just ripped. And of course there was gathering. Mm. And I was like, I can't do this with a machine. I'm going to have to do it by hand. Yeah. And it took hours. Oh, bless I mean, you. just hours, you know, of like tiny, tiny stitches holding yeah. this huge dress. And, uh, you know, it feels like I really earned being able to wear that dress again. Absolutely. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But did you feel, how did you feel afterwards? Did you feel proud? I did feel proud because I said, you know, a lot of people would have thrown this trash this mm. out. They would have thrown yeah. this dress out, this beautiful dress that I'd only worn a few times at that point. And even though it was secondhand, it still had so much more life in it. Yeah. And I mean, I was also very proud that we managed to piece it back together sta- with it on my body, standing <laughs> on the sidewalk. <laughs> With one of those horrible little plastic sewing kits. You know what I'm talking about, <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. From a convenience store. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you know, I'm really lucky to have a partner who is like, yeah, we'll just sew this right up here on the side of the street. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's made me very happy. That story has made me very, very happy. <laughs> yeah. And it, like, it didn't look bad, honestly. I could have probably kept wearing it, but I looked at it when we came back and I was like, you know, the most I could get out of this is one more wear before it needs to be really fixed. Yeah. So I'm really going to sit down and do it. And, I think in my mind it was going to be really easy. Oh, the other thing is like it was a black dress with floral, but we didn't have quite enough black thread. So it was half navy thread, half black thread. I mean, it was a huge, huge rip in the dress. Um, But yeah, I did after I fixed it by hand, I really felt like, oh, I've really done something. And, you know, this was worth all that time and a sense of accomplishment. And I felt like someone should congratulate me. So thank you for appreciating that. Yeah, it's incredible. (laughs) I'm I'm very, I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. 
St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? 
Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. Thanks again to Zoe for spending so much time with me from thousands of miles away across the Atlantic Ocean. She'll be back next week when we'll explore how sewing can be more sustainable. And please give her podcast, Check Your Thread, a listen. She's so delightful. I'll share all of the links in the show notes. I have one more thing to discuss before I get to turn the AC back on. And by the way, the sky is like black right now. We're definitely going to have a thunderstorm any second, which I'm kind of excited about because we need some rain. So I got to wrap this up. Let's talk about a new audio essay opportunity. Secondhand September is just around the corner. And you know what? It's a big deal for me. And I'm sure it's a big deal for a lot of you too. Are you passionate about the secondhand way of life? Of course you are. Then I want you to submit an audio essay. These will be included in episodes throughout Secondhand September. And I want to hear from thrifting aficionados, yard sale lovers, vintage obsessors, resellers, buy nothing members, clothing swappers, anyone who loves secondhand. I have a few ideas for what you could discuss. How did you get into secondhand shopping? Do you have any specific funny, inspiring, or super weird secondhand shopping memories? Why do you love secondhand? Where is your favorite place or way of finding secondhand items? What's your all-time favorite secondhand find? Where, when, and how did you find it? What advice would you give someone who is just getting started and is feeling frustrated? And are there any lessons you've learned the hard way? How could the world of secondhand be better and more accessible? You can talk about one or two of these or something else all together as long as it's secondhand related. Okay, so what's an audio essay? It's a recording you make using either your phone or your computer. You email it to me at amanda at clotheshorse.world and I edit and mix it and add it to an episode. It can be anonymous or not. You control your story here. Also, I will not accept written essays for this. You gotta record it. I recommend that you write it all out, then record it. It's okay if you make a mistake while recording, just say that part again and keep talking. I'll edit it, clean it all up, spruce it up when I put it in the episode. Please record in a quiet room away from fans and air conditioners. Your recording should be anywhere from three minutes to 10 minutes long. And the deadline for this project is September 10th, but the sooner you send it, the more likely it is to make it into an episode. Please include your name, Instagram handle, and pronouns. I can't wait to hear what all of you have to say. All right, well... The wind is really coming in now, so we've definitely come to the end of the road, and I got to go take take all the laundry off the wash line before it starts raining. So this is the time where I say 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating, possibly a review on Apple Podcasts. I do love the nice reviews. But most importantly, tell your friends and tell your friends they should not buy stuff from Timu. Friends, don't let friends buy stuff from Timu. I want to make a big sign that says that. Uh, If you'd like to support my work financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can learn more at patreon.com slash closed horse podcast. You could sign up for the Apple premium subscription, which is $2.99 a month and gives you access to all of the archives. Uh, You could, you know, find some other options that are in my Instagram link tree. Uh, There are other ways there too. And as always, Thank you to Dustin Travis White for our music and our audio support. And I will see you all next week. Bye.